0: Paul says in verse seven, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And Father, we just... Humbly ask as we open the word of God this morning in the presence of you and your son, Jesus Christ, in the spirit of the living God, Lord, we're humbly asking for help to continue now in our worship of you, that as we've sang and prayed and Lord done other things as an act of worship that we could continue now in a worshipful heart by submitting ourselves to the truth and the authority of your inspired word. Lord, would you this morning once again write your will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts speak to us lord by your spirit's ministry through what you have spoken in the word of god originally bless your word we ask this together in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated you know it is true that how you relate to someone always tends to make all the difference And there is nowhere, I think, that that is more true, that reality that how you relate to someone makes all the difference than in regards to how we choose to relate to the Lord. The way God relates to us in many ways does become dependent upon how we relate to him. For example, the Bible tells us that God opposes or resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If my heart is proud, God opposes, God resists me because of that prideful attitude. If my heart is humble before the Lord, God opens his hand and extends grace and is very gracious to me in my life. Now, for clarity in this section, as we look at these verses together this morning, if I can ask your patience for a moment, I want to begin by kind of just defining a few things, which I think are really foundational to help kind of grasp and understand a little bit more what's being described. You notice there are a few references here to the word covenant. And important to understand, a covenant is basically an understood agreement between two parties. We might say today a contract, an agreement that's made kind of maybe in a real estate transaction or something of that nature. That's really what a covenant is. It's an understood agreement between two parties that defines the way in which they are going to relate to one another. So spiritually speaking, a covenant is an understanding of an agreement between God and God. And humanity. And God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God in regards to how he relates to us and how we relate to him. And in this section, you can see Paul is contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. That's what Paul's doing in these verses here. His goal in doing such is to encourage us that what we have available in the new covenant, made available through the finished work of Jesus Christ, is far superior than anything that existed in the old covenant under the Mosaic law. This new covenant where the spirit is working inside of us, Paul says, is far better. Getting to live by grace and under the power of the Holy Spirit, directing us from within our hearts in regards to what we can do and what we should not do. And letting the spirit of the Lord rule us from within is far superior, Paul is going to say, than trying to live by a codified law of rules and regulations and checking boxes and making sure that we follow regulations in our own strength and obedience. The old covenant under Judaism related to God's conditions provided under the law of Moses and was predominantly based upon the works of men keeping requirements of the law and doing your best. The new covenant refers to relating to God through a different agreement, the new covenant is based upon conditions provided by the Lord Jesus Christ's finished work in his life, his suffering, his death upon the cross for our sins, his resurrection and ascension back into heaven. And now relying upon not what we do, but upon what Jesus has already done and relating to God in a wonderful position of grace and letting Jesus rule us inwardly and write his will upon our hearts. Now, the old covenant, the Bible tells us, Romans chapter 7, there was nothing wrong with the law. In fact, Paul says the law is holy and just and good, but the problem, Paul says, is that we're carnal. So there wasn't a problem with God's law or even God's initial covenant under the Mosaic law. The problem was with humanity, That because we're carnal, we can't keep the law. And that became evident very clear. The law kept continually reminding humanity that they did not obey God's holy law and it revealed continuously nothing but that we were guilty sinners, that we were in trouble. and, And it showed us that we were worthy of death and punishment and it required ongoing sacrifices. Remember, you had to continuously make sacrifices again and again to make atonement for sin and it couldn't solve the struggle with sin. That was the challenge with the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, which Paul's going to say is far superior, also does reveal that we're sinners, but it comforts and assures our hearts that God's made a solution for that problem. And it's not a solution whereby we have to continually do things to make ourselves right with God or try and earn favor or atone for our sins, but instead that we can be assured that Jesus' finished work on the cross has addressed that for us once for all. And that if we fully rely upon what Jesus has done for us, God makes us right with him through our faith In the finished work of Jesus, God gives us an acceptable condition because of our trust in what Jesus accomplished for us. And we don't need to keep religious regulations if we humbly accept the work of Jesus. Forgiveness is available for all of our sins and we can be led by the Holy Spirit ruling our hearts rather than by a code of regulations trying to be something that we're always keeping track of and continuously failing in and it gives us the power to actually overcome sin. Now, the backdrop Paul had just talked about in verses one through six, and particularly as he left off in verse six, Paul said, the kind of ministry we are conducting, remember he said, verse six, is new covenant ministry. New covenant ministry. And he said, that's because we've come to realize that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. In other words, if you try and live by the letter of the law, it will kill you. (laughs) Literally, in many different ways. You'll never make it. But Paul says, if we operate under the new covenant ministry, grace brings us to this wonderful relationship with God, where we find life and power through God's spirit working within us and helping us to live the way God wants. Now, Paul carries on with this idea of this contrast of the old and the new covenant. If you look with me in verse seven, and let's read verse seven through 11 again to see how Paul is kind of making this contrast slash comparison. He says, verse seven, but if the ministry of death, referring to the old covenant, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, Paul says. How then, contrast, will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation, again, referring to the old covenant, Had glory, the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels or excelled it and outshined it. For what is passing away was glorious, but what remains, he says, verse 11, is much more glorious. So, Paul here clearly, as I said, he's referring to the greater glory of the new covenant compared to the old covenant. And how the new covenant far outshines that which was available under the old covenant. You notice here a couple of things. He refers to the old covenant under Moses' leadership, where Moses received the law of God. In verse 7, notice again, this is the Spirit of God, ultimately, not Paul. The Spirit of God refers to the old covenant, first of all, in verse 7, as a ministry of death, that is, a ministry that resulted in or served a purpose that showed a person they were worthy of death because the soul that sins shall surely die, the Bible says. Then in verse 9, he refers to the Old Covenant, secondly, as a ministry of condemnation. That is a ministry of an Old Covenant that resulted in humanity realizing they were condemned in their guilt before God. Now in verse 7, he's describing how that Old Covenant was established under Moses, God's servant, who received it on behalf of the people of God. Paul says that it was a ministry of death, he says, verse seven, written and engraved, etched into stones, which was glorious, so much so, he says, that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses once he received that covenant up on the mountain because of the glory of his countenance, which glory is passing away. So he's referring to how Moses, remember, after the first time he came down from the mountain with the, 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 the law of God etched in stones and the children of Israel were breaking it and he tossed those stones out of his hands, they broke, that God mercifully, a second time, invited Moses up on the mountain once again and told him, look, take a second tablet of stones, come up upon the mountain, and there, when you come up there, you will meet with me. And God again gave the law of God to Moses upon a second set of stones, etched his law into those stones, the written law of God, which he was then to go back down and bring to the people that they were then to keep and obey as God's covenant with them. Now, Moses, spending those 40 days in the glorious manifestation of God's presence up on that mountain, experienced something very, very powerful. I mean, there he was, the Bible tells us, for over a month in the presence of God, experiencing the glory cloud of God's presence, and God did something glorious. He gave the people a written revelation of himself, what he was like as Yahweh God, a written revelation of his standards and his principles in a way unlike never before, God gave a written revelation of his word and how they were to honor it. And God gave them this glorious understanding, and he gave Moses such a glorious experience that it transformed him as a person in such a way when he came back down, something was different about him. Again, Exodus 34 recounts it. Let me read it to you just to refresh your memory or acquaint you. Listen to how it describes it. It says, Moses remained there on the mountain with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. In all that time, he ate no bread and drank no water. The reason God was sustaining him supernaturally. And the Lord, it says, wrote the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on the tablets of stone. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, from those days in God's presence, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware. Listen, he wasn't aware that the skin of his face shone for his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, that his skin was shining, they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called them over to him. And then all the people of Israel approached, and Moses gave them the instructions and commandments that the Lord had given to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil when he was in God's presence until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he then returned once again in to speak with the Lord. So the Bible tells us so glorious was the spiritual encounter that Moses had in the presence of God that literally when he came back down from the mountain, his skin was actually shining. He had the, you might call it the mo glow. That's not my joke. I actually stole it, but it was cheap humor. He comes back down from the mountain and all of a sudden, literally, it says his face is radiating in some way, reflecting the glory of God in this beautiful way where his skin is shining with this supernatural glory. That's why Paul says in verse seven, that when he came down, The children of Israel, look what it says, could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. And then Paul adds which glory was passing away. Now here we get an insight we're not told in the Old Testament. The Spirit under the New Testament writing of Scripture tells us that glorious shine on Moses' face that reflected God's glory That spiritual glory, it says, was slowly what? Fading. It says the glory was passing away. It was gradually diminishing. In other words, it was not a permanent glow, a permanent shine, but it was a glory that was continually diminishing. And the reason, of course, is because that glory represented the old covenant that Moses had received from God on behalf of the people And the old covenant was never intended to be a permanent thing. Just like that glory was temporary, but passing away, the old covenant was intended to be a temporary way whereby God had a covenant and related with his people. But it ultimately would pass away and lead on to something much more glorious. The salvation that God brought through his son, Jesus Christ. The law was never intended to be a permanent way for mankind to relate to God. The Bible tells us that even the New Testament Galatians says that the law of God was like a schoolmaster to educate humanity until the day that we were brought into a higher degree of understanding spiritually, which was to have a relationship with God's son, Jesus Christ. So the law served a purpose. It was glorious, but it ultimately was bringing us to something much better that through Jesus, we could have salvation and forgiveness of sins once for all, and that we could have the Lord reigning inside of us. And that one day God would even, the Bible says, Jeremiah 31, create a new covenant where he would actually write his law on the fleshly tablets of our heart on the inside and that God would rule from within us. And Paul alludes to why God intended this new covenant to come through Jesus, as we looked at, because he said that old covenant under the law of Moses was a ministry that brought condemnation and death. Who wants that long-term? God didn't even want that long-term. And so he says, because of that, God was intending to bring something different as that passed away. I mean, if you think about what the law of God did, It had wonderful purposes. It revealed God. It demonstrated to people God's holy standard and a way to live within God's boundaries that would be best for them and be healthy. But all the law of God ultimately could do was reveal to people ultimately that they were guilty of being lawbreakers. See, the law of God couldn't change their problem. It could just reveal their problem. It was like the posted speed sign, right? When you were coming in this morning, if you were running late for church, you may not have seen them, but they were there. And, and the posted speed sign reveals to you if you are a law keeper or a law breaker. But the speed sign doesn't really help you. It may intimidate you a little bit, but, but it's, a, it's a revelation. Are you keeping the law or breaking the law? And in the same way, this is what the law of God did. It, the Bible says it was like a mirror. It reveals our condition, right? When you look in the mirror, it reveals what is true of you. It tells you what you really look like. It tells you the exact representation of what's true about yourself. This is what the law did. The law was like a mirror. It revealed people's condition, but here's the thing, but it couldn't fix their condition. The law could say you are a guilty sinner, but the law couldn't solve that problem. It couldn't take away your sin and it couldn't help you overcome your propensity to be a guilty sinner. All it showed you was that the soul that sins shall surely die, and it made you worthy of condemnation. But it offered no power to overcome sin. It could tell you what was wrong, but it couldn't help you to stop doing what was wrong. It was like a thermometer, right? If you put a thermometer in your mouth, that thermometer reveals potentially that you have a fever, but can the thermometer take away your fever? I wouldn't recommend chewing up a thermometer. It's not gonna take your fever away. It can reveal your condition, but it can't change your condition. It can't solve your condition. And this is what the law of God served to do. It offered no assistance or no solution of overcoming sin. That's why, though the Old Testament ministry of the law had a degree of spiritual glory, Paul says here there was something far more glorious that God was bringing down the road. As that would pass away and ultimately the Messiah and the Savior would come, Jesus would bring a new covenant. And notice Paul contrasts the new covenant ministry by calling it by much different names in our verses. What did he call the old covenant ministry? A ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. Look how he refers to the glory of the new covenant. He refers to the new covenant ministry, which is much more superior. Verse eight, he calls the new covenant ministry, what a ministry of the spirit. That sounds much better than a ministry of death. Right, because Jesus said that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life, the exact opposite of death. So the new covenant ministry through a relationship with Jesus Christ is a ministry of the spirit. Why? Because when a person chooses to receive Jesus Christ as the savior for their sins, to be forgiven, to receive the gift of eternal life, to know that you're going to heaven by the finished work of Jesus and not your own works, and you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, what happens? The Bible says the Spirit of God enters inside of a person in that moment. That's called conversion, being born again of the Spirit. The Spirit of God himself literally enters inside of the person who receives Christ. And now the Holy Spirit is living within you and I to change us and to empower us, what? How to live right. So now we don't just know how to live right, now we're being assisted with how to live right. Because Jeremiah 31 says, now God writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our heart and then he gives us his spirit to live within us. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he functions in a way like a minister to help us spiritually. So he helps me within to live godly. He helps you within to enable you to overcome sin so that you're not always feeling guilty. He empowers you how to live right. And so therefore he says, this is the right way to live that God wants us to live. And I can help you live that way. I will give you power and strength that you don't have in your own strength to live the way that's pleasing to God. So the new covenant Gives us the power to solve the problem of our own sinfulness. And he also refers to the new covenant. Look at it in verse 9. He also calls it the ministry of righteousness rather than the ministry of what? Condemnation. The old covenant, the law, all it did was always condemn me, condemn you, condemn every Jew who looked at it. You're condemned. You're a lawbreaker the ministry of Jesus Christ, the new covenant ministry is far more glorious because Jesus says, yes, you are a sinner and you need to accept that. But that should make you also want to be excited that you can accept me as your savior because I paid for your sin on the cross and you don't have to be guilty and punished and condemned and be banished to hell eternally forever. I absorb the wrath of God for you. I died in your place. I offered the heavenly father, my sinless righteous life as a sacrifice on your behalf. And now the Bible says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation that Jesus became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. And Jesus offers to us this ministry of becoming righteous as he gives us a righteous standing that we don't have in our own sinful guilt. And he offers that to us as a free gift that if we simply believe upon and receive what Jesus did for our sinful condition, though we're sinful, he makes us righteous. He gives us a holy and a righteous standing. Paul writes it this way in Romans three, indicating that we are sinful, that we can't make ourselves right with God. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law tells us. We're all universally guilty and sinful people. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law or religious works. He says, for through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That is, we recognize our own sinfulness. That's the glory and the good purpose of the law. We know how sinful we are. But now the Bible says the righteousness of God That is a way to be made right with God, to be made acceptable before God. And it's a righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness of God, not your righteousness and my righteousness, but the righteousness of God, a way to be right before God, apart from obeying the law is revealed. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Paul says in the next chapter, chapter four, to the one who does not work, but believes on him. That's Jesus who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited to his account as righteousness. This is the ministry of the new covenant that though we're guilty, condemned sinners, and that doesn't change that God judicially looks at me as a guilty, condemned sinner. And he says, yes, you are guilty and you deserve death. The law says that you should be condemned and punished forever. However, because of what Jesus has done, paying your fine, and he's willing to take your punishment, I declare you today righteous. You're justified. It's like you've never done that wrong, and you are free from punishment and any sentence for your sin. And more than that, I see you as a righteous, innocent person. What a great transaction. By simply believing in Jesus. That means this morning, if your faith is in the finished work of Jesus Christ... I don't care what you have done in your past. I don't care what sin you're currently struggling with. From God's judicial perspective, you are justified and declared righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's how God relates to you. Even as a failure, even as someone who's flawed, God relates to you in the righteousness of the son Jesus. This is why Paul says, how much more glorious is this New Testament ministry says the old covenant had a glory to it. But Paul says, verse eight, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious for if that old ministry of condemnation had a glory to it. The ministry says, verse nine of righteousness, it exceeds far more. He says in glory, verse 10 and 11, he just emphasizes it for even what was made glorious really he says had no glory. The idea is in comparison in this respect because of the glory of that far excels it for if what was passing away, that old covenant ministry was glorious. What remains the new covenant ministry, he says is much more glorious. So again, Paul's pointing out this reality, how the new covenant ministry of having a relationship with God through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. He says, man, that far outshines anything that living under the law gave to anybody. It's so much more wonderful and glorious You can walk with Jesus. You can have an experience within with the Holy Spirit. And it's much better, he says, than just following a a codified set of regulations. We can actually have personal relationship with God. In Old Testament law keeping, Paul says there again in verse 11, as he's driving home the point, he says, that was something that from God's mind was always that which was passing away. It was just Temporary. But God was bringing something far better that was intended to notice. He says, remain, that is to stay permanent, something that was far more superior. Again, how much importance that applies to us, because even as the Lord's people and as Christians, sometimes we can make the mistake. We call it legalism. We use that term in the church. And the idea of legalism is basically when you start having a legal relationship with God by rules and regulations and law keeping, whatever laws you want to make up that you deem spiritual, rather than having a loving relationship with God by faith and trusting the finished work of his son, Jesus. And what the Bible is reminding us here is so important is we should remain in a faith-based love relationship with Jesus and never allow ourselves to go back to that which God was trying to let pass away, which is a rules and regulation way of Christian living, whereby we try and relate to God by rules and regulations, and we live by being religious rule keepers, where we, or maybe some church, says, Look, well, true Christians, I know you're a Christian, but true Christians they dress like this. They don't dress like that. True Christians, they dress like this. True Christians watch these kind of movies. Unspiritual Christians, they watch those kind of movies. True Christians listen to this kind of... Look, I'm not saying we shouldn't have convictions, but we're to live according to biblical standards not religious traditions of rules and regulations and requirements that somebody who wants to deem this is spiritual and this is unspiritual. Or those who do these things are spiritual and those who don't do these things aren't spiritual. Or vice versa. Those who don't do these things, they're, they're really spiritual because they don't do those things. But those who do these things, they're not spiritual. How could you be spiritual and do that? See, that, that's legalism. That's beginning to relate to God, whereby we're saying we increase or subtract from our righteousness or our relationship with God based upon what we do or don't do. And he says, whoa, 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 what's supposed to remain is that it's about grace. And if you want to be ruled by something, be ruled by the Holy Spirit telling you within, that's what the New Testament says, telling you within this is right and this is wrong. And you don't need a codified set of regulations that you create in your own checklist or some church tries to tell you to tell you what's righteous and not righteous. The spirit of God's more than adequate to tell us that. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit, right? If you listen to him, we'll walk in holiness as his ministry works within. And this is such an important thing that Paul's trying to emphasize. Why would we want to shrink back? when God's given to us something far, far better. Paul goes on to say, therefore, since we have such hope, since we know these things, we use great boldness of speech. So Paul says, this truth makes us so hopeful inside. Man, we want to confidently, with boldness, declare this to people. We want to tell people this wonderful news to give hope to others who are just like us, Paul would say, who struggle with sin, even as we do that Jesus has made a way to be forgiven, that you don't have to try and you know, make yourself acceptable before God and always work to make yourself righteous and earn God's favor. Jesus accomplished all that. You just need to rely upon what Jesus did and know that you have a basis of grace and a righteous standard from God and that God, on top of that, wants to give you the power of his Holy Spirit who lives within you To live the way that he tends. I mean, it's like finding a cure for cancer for yourself. If you found a cure for cancer for yourself, would you not want to confidently tell a lot of other people? And this is kind of what Paul's saying. He's saying having this hope, it it makes us want to just share this with other people and boldness. He then goes on, verse 13, to say, unlike Moses, who put a veil, he's referring to that veil now, over his face, So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of, notice what he says again, was passing away. Now remember, we just read earlier in Exodus 34 that Moses was glowing, right, with that radiance of God's glory. His face was shining, reflecting that brilliance. But the Bible tells us here in verse 13 another reason why Moses was putting that veil over his face to cover that shining because that radiant shine was not lasting, nor was it going to be permanent. So Moses was putting that veil over his face in some way to allow the people of Israel not to become overattached to that radiant glow that reflected the Old Testament covenant being received by him. Because Moses himself understood that ultimately one day there was a a much greater prophet than himself, someone much more glorious that was coming, the Messiah, that was going to bring a far better covenant to the people of God. And that long term, God did not want his glory just being reflected, an outward thing. God wanted his glory to be radiated from within. As Christ would live within people, Colossians says that Christ is in you and he's the hope of glory. That the very glory of God dwells within us as the spirit of the Lord resides inside of us through Jesus. So when Moses veiled his face, it was that Israel might not be misled. And it also shows that Moses understood that he could not retain the glory of God. He couldn't retain the glory of God by means of the law alone and efforts to keep the law because that's what they were living under in that day, and his efforts to keep the law wasn't keeping the glory of God radiating on his face. If anyone knew better than anybody, Moses understood, hey, keeping laws is insufficient to keep the glory of God in your life. It doesn't work. And for all of us, it's a good reminder. You can't and I can't remain the glory of God in our life by outward conformance. That spiritual pursuit, will do nothing other honestly than just begin to blind us to her own true need. And that veil on Moses's face, it says that he was putting that veil over his face. It was really hindering the people of God from seeing the glory passing away. And it was in a sense, keeping them from seeing in a hidden way that veil was concealing a spiritual reality that was taking place is that that was diminishing. Now, Building on that imagery, Mo, or Paul goes on to say of that, verse 14, but their minds, that is the people of Israel, were blinded, for until this day, he says, the same veil, he keeps with this analogy, remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament scriptures, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, he says, when Moses is read the law, a veil lies on their heart. So he uses this imagery of Moses' veil hiding an important spiritual reality in that day that the glory was diminishing. And he uses this as an image now to illustrate another sad reality being seen is there being this hidden spiritual reality of the need of Jesus Christ to be one savior for their soul. He describes in verse 14 and 15 here the current judicial blindness of the Jewish people rooted in Judaism. That as a result of them rejecting their Messiah, Jesus Christ, when he came the first time and their pride in refusing him, they have lost, the Bible's telling us, an ability to see. The idea is because they did not want to see Jesus as their Messiah. Now, in a sense, judicially, they've been blinded and they cannot see Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus said in John chapter five to the religious leaders in that day, you search the scriptures because you think in them, in their Old Testament scriptures is eternal life. But you don't see that they that is the Old Testament scriptures testify of me. That's why he describes here. Notice their minds, he says, their minds being blinded. What does the mind speak of your ability to reason things out and come to conclusions? Right. And he says their ability to reason things out and come to conclusions has been blinded. The idea has been handicapped. They're not only unable to see clearly in some ways, they're not even able to see at all. There is a spiritual blindness. Paul speaks about this to the Romans in Romans 11 verse 25. There he says this to us as the church and predominantly Gentile people who were non-Jewish, but know Jesus. He says, Romans 11, 25, that we're not to be ignorant as a church, but to understand that blindness in part has happened to the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have commended the kingdom of God. See the Bible teaches that there is judicially on a national level a veil of blindness, sadly, that has settled in over the hearts and the minds and the perspective of Jewish people rooted in Judaism in such a way whereby they are unable to see the revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. That because they refused Jesus as the Messiah when he came to his own, his own received him not, the sad result of their refusal to see is now the Bible says they're actually unable to see. In fact, He even alludes to here in our verses how even in, notice he says, in the reading of the Old Testament, there's a veil that remains so even when they read the law of moses a veil is lying on their heart the idea is when they read the old testament scripture they don't see it's veiled to them and they can't see clearly how it speaks of christ how it speaks of jesus i mean think about that even passages of scripture that are so direct like psalm 22 as it describes crucifixion so clearly isaiah 53 that speaks so clearly of the suffering of the Messiah for sin of humanity. Zechariah 12, that they will look upon him who they have pierced and mourn for him as one. And they they don't see because there's a blindness. The idea is that their mind and their heart is blinded. They, They just don't see it. Where you and I, we study the Old Testament on Wednesday nights here and we read it. Wow, look, man, that speaks. Look at that. It talks about Jesus. Look at that. God was speaking and pointing to Jesus. But we see that because the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ has illuminated that within. But he says, sadly, there's a blindness that's settled over their hearts. If you've ever spoken to a Jewish person, you know this reality. Just yesterday when we were doing the Atlantic City outreach out in the park, afterwards a gentleman walked up who was Jewish and we started speaking with him for a little bit. And that very biblical reality was so evident there. And as we were trying to talk to him about the Lord and dialoguing with him and even using the Old Testament scriptures to him, it it was just so evident that he could not see. There was this very reality. There was just a veil over his eyes. You should pray for him. Pray God takes the veil away, that God opens his eyes to be able to see, that he could see clearly what's there. Look, the wonderful thing is this. There is hope for any Jew individually or any person spiritually, because Paul says in Romans 10 this, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based in knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they would not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes see this is what they need to be able to see but yet the bible says there is this judicial blindness upon them in this time period when lots of gentile people are coming to christ and there is the bible says until the fullness of the gentiles comes in there is a set number of gentile people who will be converted to christ converted to christ and predominantly the spirit of the lord is moving among the church through the gentile nations of the world right now God will once again deal with Israel. That's a whole nother subject in and of itself, but there is this blindness. Now, Paul wants to describe in verse 16 here, how that blindness is lifted away spiritually. How could it be lifted away spiritually from a Jew or from any person for that matter? Well, look what Paul says. He said, verse 14, the veil is taken away. How? It's right there. It's in your Bible. In Christ. The veil's taken away in Christ. And look what Paul says. Well, then, how's the blindness go away? Verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil is taken away. So the Bible tells us when someone humbly turns to the Lord Jesus, And chooses to believe as a sinner that Jesus Christ is God's sent savior for the world. That in that moment of choosing to believe who Jesus is and what he has done, there is a supernatural work of God's spirit that takes the veil away. That takes off the blindness and then all of a sudden, a person is able to see clearly as the Holy Spirit comes into their soul and the light of God illuminates them from within, now the heart and soul and mind and spirit sees it clearly. Right, The light's turned on in the inside. That's what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 8, in many ways regarding turning to the Lord. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That when a person says, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus, God illuminates them inwardly, and they're able to see clearly because that veil is taken away. That when they turn to the Lord, that happens. Look, today, let me just say, if you choose, for whatever your reason may be, if that's where you're at, if you choose not to embrace Jesus, and if you choose to keep trying to be good and religious on your own or solve your own spiritual condition, or establish your own righteousness. I think I'm good enough. I mean, compared to, I'm good enough. You got the wrong comparison. The standard is Jesus. Nobody's good enough. But if you choose to not believe upon Jesus Christ and receive him as the savior for your sin, to spare your soul, to give you forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life after you die to go to heaven for sure, then the Bible cautions you, in essence, are choosing to keep yourself spiritually blinded. Glance down with me just in chapter four. Look what Paul's gonna say next. He says, chapter four, verse three, if our gospel, the good news of salvation is veiled, it's veiled how? How? To those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age that 's the devil has blinded, who do not believe, lest they the light of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ, who's the image of God should shine on them, what does the Bible say that when a person chooses not to believe, they allow the devil to keep them spiritually blinded, their choice not to turn to Jesus keeps them in that spiritually blind condition. But when a person turns to Jesus, all of a sudden, the light comes on, right? Who who hasn't experienced that? All of a sudden, when you choose to turn to Jesus, you say, this is what those Christians are talking about. Now, now I what? I never saw that before. I can't believe this. But what happens? Spiritual illumination, the blindness goes away. But it's not until one turns to the Lord. So Paul says, verse 17, now the Lord, Jesus, is the Spirit. Notice he's speaking of the unity between Jesus as the Lord and the Spirit of God being one, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's important because after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven, he said, look, I'm no longer going to be with you in the flesh, but I'm now going to send my Spirit to be with you, and he'll dwell within you. And now we have a relationship with God by the spirit dwelling within. But who's the spirit? It's the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't here bodily and physically, but now he is within us and among us spiritually. Romans 8 tells us this, the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul says here, verse 17, look at it. Now the Lord, that's who the spirit is. It's the spirit of the Lord. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty where the Spirit of the Lord is. The idea is where the Spirit of the Lord is present and at work. Well, where is the Spirit of the Lord present and at work? Inside the life of every Christian and within and among the church, the body of Christ. That's where the Spirit of the Lord is and at work. And where the Spirit of the Lord is present and at work, he says, what? There is liberty. The idea is liberation freedom where the spirit of the Lord is at work in the life of a Christian and among the church, he says there is liberation from the spirits ministry liberation from what from keeping laws and rules and regulations to be holy and righteous and liberation from the power of sin controlling our life. Because now we receive victory in a way the law could never give to us because Jesus by his spirit is empowering us within how to live right. And what a wonderful characterizing mark where the spirit of the Lord Jesus is at work. There will be an atmosphere of liberty, of freedom. People will be able to live in the freedom of the Lord. Paul says it's for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. How wonderful. How do you know when the spirit of the Lord is at work in someone's life, you will begin to see freedom and liberation and people being set free from things, whether it's rules and regulations in the way they try related to God and now they learn how to just walk with Jesus and let the spirit rule them within. Or you will see people beginning to be set free from the power of sin in their life that once was controlling and dominating them. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 6 where he says that we're no longer to be slaves of sin. Sin's not gonna have dominion over us. Because Paul says now Jesus lives within us and he says so we're no longer a slave to sin, but instead we've now become a slave to righteousness because Jesus, our master, is ruling on our heart and by the spirit of the Lord within us, he's directing us how to live in a God-pleasing way. How wonderful to be liberated from such things and not to have to relate to God out of guilt and condemnation and trying to in a sense of religious duty do things that please the lord but instead to relate to god in a spirit of appreciation because you're just so thankful for what jesus did and so you just want him to rule on your heart and to show you what's right and to show you what's wrong again how can we tell when the spirit of the lord jesus is at work liberty will be happening freedom and deliverance will be taking place because true change doesn't come from keeping religious rules. It comes from pursuing a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus. Look folks, what is our part in the process? Please hear me on this before we conclude. What's our part in the process? We have to make a decision to turn to the Lord. That's our part in the process. For some of you, that may mean this morning For the very first time that you need to make a decision to turn to the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to just do the religious thing, the church thing, the clean up your own act thing, the live however you want and hope it works out in the end thing. Look, this morning, you may need to turn to the Lord and say, I am a guilty, condemned sinner. And Jesus, thank you so much that you did what you did. Please save me from myself and my sin. Forgive me. Lord, I need to follow you and let you lead and rule over my life. And some of you may need to turn to the Lord the first time in your life this morning. For others of us here this morning, perhaps we need to turn back to the Lord. Maybe to some degree you've turned away from the Lord. Maybe you've turned away from the Lord. I haven't turned away from the Lord. Maybe you've turned away from the Lord because maybe you've been turning a little too much to some sin in your life. And maybe your focus and attention and desire and commitment has been a little bit more to some sin than it has been living for Jesus. And perhaps the Lord would say, look, it's time to turn from that. And you need to turn back to me and give me your deepest commitment, not that sinful wrong behavior. Maybe it means turning away from a spirit of just spiritual laziness and apathy. Maybe it means turning away from a Christian life that you've reduced to nothing other than just keeping rules. And Jesus is saying, can we stop the rule thing? Take all your religious checklists, throw them out the window and just walk with me again, just love me and be in relationship with me. And the wonderful thing is, is that when we relate to Jesus, right? There's no telling what God will start to do in our lives. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God and the ministry of your spirit and how he just brings wonderful change and transformation in our lives. And Lord, in some ways, it's exciting to think, Lord, we're one breath away, one verse away from what you will say to us in verse 18, Lord, that when we just begin to behold you, Jesus, and gaze upon you, that the spirit of the Lord brings transformation.